0: Welcome to the Soaked by Slush podcast. I'm your host, Mikko Mandula. Today, we're joined by an incredibly exciting guest in Alex Boazis, the co-founder and CEO of Deal. Deal lets companies handle compliance and payroll globally. In just over three years, Alex and his co-founder, Shua, have grown the business to nearly 700 employees and raised over $600 million from some incredible institutions and individuals like Y Combinator, Andreessen Horowitz, Spark Capital, Alexis Ohanian, and Dara Khosrow-Shahi. Alex was born in France in 1993, He moved to Israel for his bachelor's, went to MIT for his master's, moved back to Israel to found Lifeslice, and eventually to the Bay Area to found Deal. Let's go to the episode. So Alex, let's start with uh, some of your background and how you actually got to where you are today. And I think one question that I wanted to kick off with is what's one habit without which you would not be where you are today? I think one habit
1: that I do over and over again is to never push things back for tomorrow. Uh, If there's something that I can do today and get it done, making sure that I get it done right now has been, I think, one of the core mentality of ownership and work at Dill that we've been able to even pass down to most of our team. When you have that sense of urgency, then You just have a tendency to build a better organization, an organization that cares. And what I've found is that sometimes two minutes makes a big difference. You know, it's don't push something to tomorrow if you can get it done today.
0: I I like that a lot. Um, Another question that I think speaks to your background is if you got to relive your early 20s, what's one thing you would have done significantly more than you did? I'm an engineer by background, so I
1: used to build and, and think and keep to myself. And I think one of the beauty of this ecosystem is that in general, people are very outgoing and they kind of crave relationships. They kind of like want to share their learnings, want to share their experience. I, I think if I was to go back, I would have spent time meeting more people uh, rather than, you know, being that shy little engineer that I probably was at the time.
0: That's that's super interesting. Um fading into your specific experiences as a founder, what's one important thing that you're inherently better at than most founders? And what's one thing you've had to kind of painfully cultivate over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm the wrong person to answer that. I think think we should ask my team and they can tell you what I'm good (laughs) or not great at. I think one thing I'm pretty good at is that sense of ownership where I will see something through and I will get something done. It doesn't matter how complex it is. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable am I on the subject. You know, I'm lucky enough to hire people that are way better than myself at doing that job, but still being able to have relevance into the conversations, into how should things be built because you're curious and you go dive deeper and you want to own and make sure things happen. What am I bad at? Um, Quite a bit. Uh, (laughs) I think I'm not the most organized person. So being that classic, oh, everything's in your head. Well, I'm that person, right? And, you know, early stage when it's just you, it's fine. But as the organization grows, it's never a great thing.
0: Can you just talk me through the kinds of systems you've built at Deal to address that? Like, what systems do you have in place to tackle your inherent uh, lack of an act for documentation? So it's a personal thing, right? Because I'm very lucky that the rest of my organization
1: is not like <laughs> me. Uh, exactly. And the people that I usually hire direct reporting to me, I always check on that. I'm like, okay, I'm going to suck at that. Are you great at it? And generally, for context, still today, you know, it's grown to about 700 people across 60 plus different countries. So documentation continuous communication, continuous improvements on communication, rollouts, everything is super critical, right? And we are building the whole infrastructure of enabling everyone at the company to truly understand what deal is, building the training, the processes end to end so that people can really evolve and can really grow within the organization. If you feel like you can't grow anymore, that's apart from bad manager, that's probably like the second biggest reasons which you would leave a company and strongly documented training strong guidelines, good understanding of what is a career path? How do you get to the next place?
0: This is something we want to over invest in. And this is something that good documentation would definitely help with. so I wanted to put forth a kind of a proposition or a claim, and I, I want you to to evaluate it. So some people contend that wanting to be a founder first and purposely coming up with ideas second is the wrong way to go about things. So you need to have a problem that pulls you in first, and then kind of second, you need to choose that a scalable company is the right way. And I think a a corollary of that is you can't force yourself to come up with startup ideas. So what, what do you think of the statement? My theory which is probably wrong, but I, to some extent, like
1: really believe in it, is every smart entrepreneur will eventually build something big. When it comes to ideas, you should never love ideas because ideas are worthless. It's all about the execution behind that. Um, I like the idea of caring for a general topic and then finding your way through that. And I think you know, this is why, to some extent, why Combinator, which is one of the earliest investor in deal is successful is if you bet on the team, if you bet on the people, if you think hey, they're smart. They'll figure out something. If they've got that resilience and that entrepreneurial spark, they will figure it out. Which kind of like comes back to your question at the beginning. Can you force being a founder? Um, I think if you're smart and if you've got the right characteristics and you're willing to take the pain, because trust me, like the first companies I built, it was painful, right? When you're building something and it's not growing and you're trying hard and it's just not going the way you want it to go, like it doesn't feel great. But I think there is a point where if you're smart, resilient, you will build something
0: great. It's just a matter of when. And if you're still there because you're resilient, then you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I, I love that. So you already mentioned that, or you alluded to the fact that LifeSlices, your first company, ultimately went out of business. And I think a classic aphorism is that companies die when the founder gives up. So I want to hear when and why did you give up on LifeSlices? Yeah, it was a bit more complex than
1: that. We had definitely some interesting assets and it was not a terrible outcome. I think there's a few things. First, I realized I wasn't good at consumer. I wish I was. Maybe I'll get better over time, but I'm inherently somewhat of a salesperson. And my personal skills being put into trying to get one or two consumers to use an application, is just very hard to scale. And just the thinking frameworks you need to put in place to lead consumer-led growth through product, just just not something I was really good at. Second, at the time living in Israel and being a non-Israeli, working on consumer made it really hard for me to fundraise as well. And eventually there's a point where being very driven is important. Being very committed is important. Having strong opinions is important, but you must hold them pretty weekly so that you can be flexible in terms of where you were going. And I think I did every single mistake in the book, right? I built something and thought, this is the solution. The word doesn't understand. Let's build more. And what's going to fix my problem is more features. It's never more features, right? Like spoiler, if you're building more features, you probably have the wrong product. You need to have tractions with what you already have at the beginning. For me, it was very much a journey of understanding what it means to build products, How do you do that? And how do you build an early stage team and have that resilience of like iterating on
0: things until you get it right? Fantastic. So tell me everything that because of your experience at Lifeslice, you did differently in the early days of Deal. Um, So a few things. First, when we started Deal, we were very
1: lean and very flexible. So we iterated through ideas a lot during Y Combinator. We tried a lot of things to see what works, but more importantly, we listened to our customers. Like, what are your pain points? How do you feel about it? And really following our customers. So it wasn't about building for building. It was building to solve a very clear problem. One of the things I appreciate the most about Dell today is 80 plus percent of our roadmap is determined for us, right? Like our customers tell us, I need this. And when you've got like 100 plus customers that tell you, I need this, you're like, well, I guess we're doing this, right? Um, So listening to your customers more was definitely one of the things. Second, I learned how to build products, right? Most companies in the HR world are like, oh my God, that UI is terrible. Why am I here? And and to some extent, what I I think I took from building a consumer product was optimizing on simplicity and bringing that consumer mindset into the product you're building for for B2B. One of the first person we hired at Dill to lead our product, we're still here was one of the heads of product at Revolut. And I was always fascinated by Revolut. For me, it's the best fintech product in the world, right? And I'm like, please, whoever is going to build Deal, come and help me build that fucking beautiful experience. (laughs) Because this is how magical I want this product to be. So trying to build something a little better and thinking about our design systems and
0: how we approach problems so that it feels great. One thing I wanted to jump on is you mentioned you're a much better founder for a, for a B2 B2B company than a B2C company. So if we abstract that a little bit, how can I as a prospective founder understand whether I'm going to be better at B2B or B2C? My thinking framework is most founders are not going to be great at B2C.
1: Yeah, only a couple of people have that spark when it comes to B2C and are able to craft beautiful product that really grow And with the understanding of even if you've got that lightning in a bottle and you're holding on to it as much as you can there's so many great companies that spike and then disappear into oblivion right or spiked and then get copied by the big ones because their moat is more about the execution of the product but as soon as the execution is unveiled right as soon as people understand it then they can build on top of that so my, my thinking is consumer is really hard and it just really takes very very committed people i think most people are better at b2b because it's much more pragmatic, right? Um, it's much more, hey, I'm building that because that customer wants that. And the trap in B2B is much more, how
0: do I turn my skills into software that scales versus how do I make sure it doesn't become service? Give me a little bit more detail around how you went about listening to your customers and iterating on the product early on. Because B2B gives you the benefit, right? Where you can actually, you can sell something up front and then you can go and build it. And generally, as you said, you you can work in much closer conjunction with your customers. But how did you concretely do that? Yeah, so there's a few things we've done, right? The concept of DIL is very simple.
1: We help companies hire anyone anywhere compliantly as independent contractors or full-time employees where we have entities all around the world. So first, luckily for us, we were a distributed team. So the first customer at Dill was Dill, right? So we wanted to pay our team. We wanted them to have a great experience. So listening to customers is important, but... I'm, I can firmly tell you that if you don't understand the problem you're solving for at a very deeply rooted level, then you'll. I do not believe you'll do well. Second, I remember during that time, that was the time where my co-founder, Shro, she was emailing 200 plus companies per day, manually crafted emails, personalized to start getting this early feedback and customers. The deal you see today was actually triggered by one of our customers. So we had the very basic version of deal that was doing some bits but not exactly everything. It was more about enabling you to pay someone and escrowing the money internationally, and then they could get their money later. And I remember one of my batchmates at the time during Y Combinator escrowing $8,000 to pay their teammates. I remember going to him and was like, what is wrong with you? Like, what, what happened? <laughs> and I talked to him and I really understood that he had a teammate internationally. He wanted to give them a great experience. He didn't know how to do it well. And the idea that we would tie contracts, payments together felt right and felt like, a better way than just sending money uh, without any contract and talking to more people really enabled us to truly understand where we end up have to solve something that we believe was big because
0: we were experiencing it. But beyond ourselves, do other people think the same? One concept I wanted to jump on is you mentioned deal speed, which which is your internal term for the pace at which you move. So how as a founder can you ensure that your understanding of the appropriate pace at which to move ripples down the organization? I, I think there's a couple of things. And we're not perfect, right? But the first one would be this has
1: to be top down. This has to be something you believe in, right? If you as a founder just tell people go do this or go do that, never works. You're not gonna build the right culture. If you are the first one to get things done and get really hands-on and show the way, then already, to me, you're showing the right culture. I think that's very important. And, you know, you can argue that's not scalable, blah, blah, blah. You know, my my perspective is if you're not showing the way as as a founder, eventually as a leadership team, right, then why would people follow it? The second thing is you have to pick your battles. Like, what do you want speed on? And for us, it's always been about execution and customers, right? do do i need you to be super rapid on like smaller things that don't truly really matter to the organization No, I need you to be rapid when a customer has an issue, when that small thing we can build can close that big deal that changes the course of the company, right? Those are the things where you gotta be ready to jump fast in, which leads me to my last and third point is the people that you hire. The people you hire have to buy into that idea and they have to have the characters that enables them to leverage what you're doing. Not every company empowers you to move that fast, empowers you to take decisions and it takes very specific characters to do that. And, you know, being very honest in your interview process being very thorough in terms of what are the qualities and who you want to hire and, and why does it make sense and I actually I think interviewed every single hire until we reached 350 or 370 people on the culture wow. side because that was really important to us as a company you could say because I wasn't uh, good enough at delegating it to. I'm much better at it now but at least you know I think the common theme we have at deal really shines for our principles right We. About our customers, we're happy people, we're excited to be here, and you know, we want to move fast, we want to build things. We really believe in what we're doing, we want to help hundreds of millions of people to get to work for the best companies in the world, and that's not going to happen if we just let things fly by, you
0: know, <laughs> exactly. Um, As their companies scale, how should founders think about their own set of responsibilities? Like, how do you ensure that you don't become a roadblock because you're not letting go fast enough, yet you maintain a sufficient level of control to ensure that the important things that you want to have control over, you have control over? I think I've become much better at this. I think the one thing I understood was
1: whenever I hire people in my team, the goal we want to get to is for me never to have to look again at that organization. By definition, if I need to spend time there, that means something is broken, right? That means something is not great. So the best way to eventually delegate and eventually, you know, being able to scale yourself as you're going to have to as a as the CEO of the company, right? As an executive at the company is to hire people you trust can really get the job done and understand that as you're going to grow as a company, you know, some people may not be the right people anymore, right? There's a point where you outgrow people. You know, Dill grew from, just in 2021, from four, 4 million in revenue to over almost 60 million in revenue. A lot of people have never seen revenue get there, right? And the thing is, when you're growing that fast, the leader that you have today for one position is not always the leader that you need tomorrow, right? And one of the things that I found is super useful is hiring people that are way above where you need to be. That's one of the new realizations I've had. I know everybody knows that. I'm sorry I only realized it recently, but you know, when you do that, you're going to be in a much, much better place to let go. The only times you can't let go is if deep down, you don't feel comfortable about who is in charge there.
0: So I think there's a kind of a common aphorism that comments on some of what you described, which is that companies need a different CEO and style of leadership for each stage of growth. So in your mind, what are those important phases of growth? And what are the most important ways in which you as the CEO have to adapt? I think that personally, my role
1: changes every month or every two months. So I think over time, you'll need to pick your battles, pick where you're good at and hire the right leaders. And you should focus your time where proactively, you know, the problems will arise, right? Because I have that perspective and like that bird eye view, I can kind of see which department is becoming bottleneck for the organization. So, you know, maybe I'll spend a bit more time there to help them figure it out. To also understand, you know, is the the right person leading that org or do we need more seniority or more leadership? So I think as you grow, the different departments you have evolve in such different ways that you just need to reinvent yourself. Like if you look at my co-founder, she's leading, I don't know, 250, 300 people organization on our sales organization. And now, you know, they're hiring like 250 SDRs. 250 SDRs means a very different organization, right? And she needs to think, okay how can I strategically help? Who do I strategically spend time with? What is the best way for me to get there? And you kind of have to think about yourself a little bit and see, okay, who needs my help the most? And based on your skills as well. So like, you know, I'm pretty decent at product, right? So I try to spend time with my product. You know
0: what I mean? I, I do. And you've already established that Ideally, what you want to find is people who can take a chunk of the organization and run with it, and you don't have to look that way ever again because they're they're so independent with it. And you talk to some of the merits of making an external senior hire to fill that role, But are there some drawbacks to that method? Are there some moments in which you should promote from within, or you should promote someone that can grow into the role rather than someone who can execute it three years from now? We've internally promoted a ton of people, but at the very like VP head of level, it's usually
1: pretty complex. When the rate of change is so high, the level that you can get in seniority from people that have done it and the value you get out of that is just so high that I'd love to, but I haven't seen isn't it yet? Um, it's a weird one, but I've heard that from a couple of my investors, which is the luxury I have, which not a lot of people have, is I can learn on the job. Most of the other people can't really, right? They got to be able to execute. You'll always be learning, but the key parts of the job and the key execution, you got to know, like the only person that can absorb the knowledge and be there is probably me or maybe Shaw. But it's different if you're growing more slowly and you're ramping up more slowly and you have time to build people up for higher and higher growth.
0: Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm thinking where to go from here. Let's go with this. So if you showed me your calendar now, you shared your screen and showed me your calendar, what about your usage of time would I find most surprising? you probably tell me I have too many meetings. <laughs> <laughs> How many do you have? Uh, at least... 12
1: meetings a day up to 20. Um, Not that many are internal, actually. A lot of them are external. So some of our bigger customers, interviews, board meeting, PR, like a lot of that are external. Um, I think you'd find, maybe, I think what you'd find surprising is the breadth of differences between the meeting I'm doing. It's not focused into one area and You know, I'm going to jump from a podcast to an interview, to a sales call, to a product review. That's my next four meetings, right? So like, it's very different, which I guess probably
0: is the same for every CEO, but I, I find that interesting. So you already mentioned that, uh, or you alluded to the fact that from Y Combinator, through your funding rounds, you know, Deal has a host of iconic individuals and funds as its investors. And I'm sure at the kind of level that the company is now, you have pretty great access in the ecosystem. So who do you go for advice when you face personal challenges as a founder CEO, or when you're faced with a really difficult company decision? Who do you ask for help? Critical
1: company decision and general, I will go to my co-founder and to my CFO. So both of them would be who we chat with and discuss decisions. Could go to my board, but the thing is, a company is growing fast, right? It's hard to have proper perspective on some of those things if you're not like very much in the details. General advice about org building or about stack decisions, I usually tend to go to other C-levels or founders at companies I love and respect, right? So like Coinbase, DoorDash, Brex, like those are companies that I, I find unbelievable and the execution that they had is crazy so anything we can do to like learn from some of the mistakes that they might have made to shorten
0: our learning process to get to the right answer faster I would do in a hard bit. What's the most impactful or most insightful question you've asked uh, CEO of another company?
1: I like to understand two things. What is your current org structure? So I understand like with the reporting line, what do they value? How do they think? And actually I get a lot of very cool insights from that. Like I was talking to the CEO of Rapid and he gave me a super valuable advice, which is take customer success inside of your org. And it wasn't, right? It was in the sales org. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. Brought on customer success into my org. And now I have product and success so I can move even faster in customer delivery. So what is your organization and how is it built? That would be the first question. And then I love to ask, what hire do you think changed the company for you? And that's super interesting because you get such different answers based on the company, based on the funders. Like it's such an interesting question to just understand like, did anyone even change the company for you guys? Right? Like, do you think you ever made such a hire that, like the course of the company got changed but
0: it's also interesting to see what they value and how they think about it like i love asking that question awesome and uh last question what's one important truth about company building that very few people would agree with you on well it depends uh, if you mean
1: disagree on the surface or disagree for real you know i think disagree on the surface <laughs> early early stage when you're starting the company and you're only a couple of people you gotta work hard there's no such thing as a work-life balance it gets much better over time right at a stage like we are it's much 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 better and we're much bigger when you're a couple of people like five ten people every second you put in makes a difference and makes it that your company thrives or survives or become the the, the leader in the market and you know if you're not willing to commit if you're not willing to work hard maybe you'll build something great but i don't think you'll build something generational um so that's like the you know maybe some people would disagree with me but the second one is it's a weird one but i'd say it's it's okay like it's okay to make mistakes early on you're gonna make a lot of mistakes it's better to make informed decisions it's better to make thought-out decisions but i do not believe that a company will fail based on one single wrong decision. So for me, like an important truth is that you're gonna make a ton of mistakes. As long as you fix them and you fix them fast, then you're gonna be okay.
0: Execution is the thing that sets you apart. That's the one thing that people need to remember. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so that's five seconds. That's the episode. Hey, thank you so much, Alex. I really enjoyed this and I truly hope we see you at Slush in November having a similar conversation on stage. Thank you
1: for having me and thank you
0: for taking the time.